Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. English speakers love to turn nouns into verbs. According to Kate Steinmetz, there was rain before it rained. There was Google before we Googled. And there were adults before we adulted. In an article that she wrote called, This is what adulting means. Have you heard that word? Have you heard it used that way? We're adulting. Or we need to adult as though it were a verb. She writes, The linguistics journal American Speech has offered this definition for adulting. It means to engage in activities associated with adulthood. Doing your own taxes, buying your first lawnmower, staying in on a Friday night, (laughs) or getting super pumped about home appliances. This is adulting. In keeping with American linguistics, I'm calling tonight's study Beasting. Because it's all about describing how Antichrist engages in beastly activity. What we see in Revelation 13 truly is Antichrist beasting. It's what he's about, it's what he's doing. Ten horns, we're told. We studied this on Sunday, we looked at these things. But let me remind you, ten horns, like the ten toes on the iron and clay statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. A mixture of iron and clay, so not strong, not sturdy. But ten toes, also the ten horns of Daniel's beastly vision in Daniel chapter 7. All of this indicating a ten-nation consortium. Ten-nation coalition in the time of the tribulation. Daniel tells us three of those nations are going to be ripped out by their roots. Antichrist is going to oversee all of it and come into his power over these nations. Seven heads on this beast. Indicating six nations which dominated the world and Israel in their day and a seventh nation state ruled also again by the beast. The beast, he is a, he's the 666 who never gets to seven. He's the willful king with a failure to launch. He's the man who never gets to be the complete man, the beast with a fatal wound but never realizes Resurrection. What do you mean? Look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. If Antichrist never realizes resurrection, what's this all about? A fatal wound healed. What does this mean? Well, first of all, note it's a parallel statement. The beast comes out. And there's a parallel statement now to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Remember back in Revelation 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a Lamb standing as if slain. It's the exact same construction. As if slain. The Lamb was standing as if slain. Now the beast is standing as if slain. One of his heads, anyway, as if it had been slain. Same two Greek words together. It's hos spadzo, 
Host is a conjunction meaning as if. Spazo meaning violently killed. So the lamb, John looks at the lamb in Revelation 5 and sees the lamb as if violently killed. Well now, he sees the beast. And the beast looks as if violently killed. Antichrist is going to try to copy and counterfeit Jesus Christ as much as he can. But if Antichrist is going to try to counterfeit the Christ, he's going to have to at some point make a play at death. Skip over to chapter 17 and look at verse 8. John writes, The beast that you saw, note this, was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now that seems to, on the surface, confirm that this Antichrist spirit goes down into the abyss, that he comes up out of the abyss, that he is himself Abaddon or Apollyon of Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. But did you catch the twisted contrast with a divine description? There's a distortion here. See, Antichrist is referred to as the one who he was and is not and is to come. Whereas God is him who is and who was and who is to come. God was never, was not. God was never not. You know, He always has been, always is. He was, He is, He is to come, at least until the revelation when it's no longer needed to be said that He is to come. He was and He is. Revelation 1 verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 4 8, the four living creatures do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The beast, however, was and is not and is to come. Which sounds like somebody was and then they are not. So he was and then he died, but he's going to come back. Sounds like a description of resurrection. And so there are those who read these verses. Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 17, verse 8. And they believe that Antichrist rises to fame, as we've been talking about. But here is, at the midpoint of tribulation, assassinated, goes down to the abyss, and then rises up once again from the dead. Is that what's going on here? Well, it is if you read the Left Behind series. What's happening in Scripture? What's taking place? A couple of possibilities I'll give you tonight. Number one, the dragon indeed raises Antichrist from the dead. And there are those who subscribe to that thought that that's what's going on here. That would be a powerful sign. Jesus, speaking of the time of tribulation, Matthew 24, 23, said, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. You could say the Antichrist and the false prophet will arise. They will. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. What you could say here is the beast is Christing. It's not adulting. He's not beasting. He's Christing. He's trying to appear like Jesus, trying to act like Jesus, trying to emulate Jesus, or at least to look like another Christ. But he's not another Christ. Turn over to John chapter 5 and note this. John chapter 5, verse 21. 
For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Skip down to verse 25. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, I have life in myself. Just as the Father has life in Himself. What does the beast do? What does the dragon do, rather? John 10.10, he steals, he kills, and he destroys. Does Satan have the power to raise the dead? And I don't believe he does. What about witchcraft? What about stories that we hear? What about this right here? Antichrist appears to have been killed and raised to life. And I'd say he's a pretty good faker. Faking a resurrection. Jesus said in John 10.17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys. Jesus has the life. He has the power to raise the dead. The dragon does not. So in my opinion, the dragon doesn't raise the dead. Jesus raises the dead. At best, the dragon can fake it, making a a counterfeit. But the world is going to see this resurrection of sorts, this fake rising, and be incredibly impressed. But Antichrist is a deceiver. Look back at Zechariah chapter 11. Just kind of keep going to the left. Zechariah is toward the very end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Zechariah, Malachi, and then you're in the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 11, where a prophecy is given related to Antichrist, the beast. Zechariah 11.15 The Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So the prophet is now going to act this out. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs, which is a a good um, encouragement to, you know, the keto diet. (laughs) He'll devour the flesh of the fat, tear off their hoofs. Verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The worthless shepherd is the Antichrist. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Some say, oh, so so there it is. That's a picture. He's going to be blinded in the eye and shot in the arm and he's going to die and then be resurrected. It says nothing about him dying. 
Okay, the prophecy says this worthless shepherd is going to have a sword on his arm and on his right eye. By contrast, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus didn't die to impress anyone. He died to save those who would believe in Him. And in His death and His resurrection, even His resurrection was a thing that happened most didn't even know was happening when it took place. It wasn't paraded around to be impressive. But Antichrist, the worthless shepherd, feigning death to fool the sheep, his right arm representing strength, is going to have a sword on it. His eye, representing shrewdness and insight, will be blind to the very one who bears the sword, the one who comes with the sword. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So let me make another suggestion to you about this strange verse, this third verse of Revelation 13. Again, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, as if, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. I believe that what this is describing here for us is Antichrist trying to get ahead. Literally, think about this. What is it that is slain in verse 3? Is it the beast? No, it's one of his heads. One of the seven heads is slain. What do the heads represent? The heads are nations. Seven nations that were all dominant against Israel, right? And one of those heads, the sixth head among the nations, is Rome. I saw this this head, one of his heads, as if it had been slain. A once dominant world empire, dominant over Israel gone down with a seemingly fatal wound. As far as the world was concerned, the city of Rome fell in 426 and the empire slowly rotted from there. Down, but but not out. Seemingly fatal, but not completely dead. Rome still exists. And I believe Rome will then rise again to become a revived Roman empire, the kingdom of Antichrist. Again, Revelation 17, verse 8 which was and is not, but is about to rise again. This is a reference to Rome. This is not a reference to the beast, to Antichrist himself, having this this fatal blow and coming back to life. Now that's my opinion, and because we're talking in language that is at this point symbolic, that is part of the, the sign in this parenthetical section. I'm not going to be absolute on this, but I think the head that was slain is Rome. The head that looks dead is Rome. That is not, but will be yet again. Becoming then the seventh head on the beast. And that is the revived empire of Rome. Well, whatever happens, continue on in verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years, was given to him. A couple more things to notice about the beast here. Number one, his arrogance is inflated by worship. 
That is the worship of the world. Who is like the beast, they say. And those in the world gather around and they worship the beast. And Daniel 11.36 tells us, Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. So until the end of this seven year period. He magnifies himself. And even as he's magnifying himself... The sycophantic worship of the world is falling at his feet, which just makes him want to magnify himself more because worship tends to inflate the worshipped. Human beings don't handle worship well. We were not made to be worshipped. We were made to worship. But we were not made to be worshipped, which is why so many so-called celebrities are so messed up. Because they're worshipped and they're not made to be worshipped. They're not meant to be worshipped. And and it's just, I mean, just write down the line. I had a whole list of examples. I threw them away because I'm like, why even go there? You know what it means to be a celebrity and fall apart. It's what they all do. And it's because we put them up as stars. We worship them as such, as if they're so amazing Trained monkeys. I've said that before. They, they, they have a trick. They have an ability. Fantastic. But they're worshipped and they fall apart. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before stumbling. And there is only one exception to the destructive effects of worship among human beings. Only one. 1 Timothy 2, 5 tells us there's one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only human being ever to have been worshipped and not fall apart. Ever to be lifted up and worshipped by people like us. But not to inflate himself and exalt himself because of our worship. In fact, what does the worship of Jesus bring? More grace. The more we worship him, the more he pours out grace. The more we praise him, the more mercy This is the difference between the man, Christ Jesus, and all other men and women who have ever lived. Worshiping Him yields grace. Because God alone can rightly handle worship. We can't. We do not do well with it. So James 4, 6 says, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're going to worship, worship Jesus. Don't worship the celebrities and the stars. Ooh, I was in Starbucks and you know who walked in? Who cares? Unless it's Jesus. Because His worship yields grace. The angels even understand that about Jesus. Revelation 19.10, John says, I fell at His feet to worship Him, the angel, and He said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let our worship be of Jesus, and His grace is poured out all the more. But Antichrist, his arrogance is inflated by worship, and his opposition is increased against God's people. Verse 6, he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. Ooh, that's interesting. It's a twofold blasphemy. First off, Antichrist is just going to be out there slamming 
the name of God. Denigrating the name of Jesus. But he also blasphemes not only the name of God, but note this, his tabernacle. He blasphemes his tabernacle. What's his tabernacle? And John tells us what his tabernacle is. Those who dwell in heaven. Well, who's that? Hmm? Who? It's the church. The church. Those who dwell in heaven. Those who have now been lifted up. But note this. How do you know it's the church, Rick? Listen, this is very specific. And it's interesting to me. That they're being denigrated. Antichrist is going to do this. But the word that is used to describe the church is tabernacle. In fact, literally it says, his tabernacle, those who tabernacle in heaven. The word dwell, skenuo in the Greek means tabernacle. Remember John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus came for a while. And, and pitched his tent among us. He doesn't say that there's blasphemy against the name of God and against his temple in heaven. No, it's against his tabernacle. What's the difference? Well, temple's permanent. A tabernacle is not. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm saying here? This is a temporary stay in heaven. These are those who are temporarily there. How long, Rick? Seven years. This is, these are those who are there for a seven-year honeymoon in heaven, and we're called a tabernacle in heaven. We are those who tabernacle there because we're only there a short time. I think that's great because that means we're coming back with Jesus for the millennial kingdom. Our stay is temporary, and so we are tabernacling there. Matthew 24, verse 40, there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. And I remind you, the word taken is received unto. In both cases, one will be received unto, and one will be left. One will be received unto, one will be left. And John 14.3, Jesus said, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto. Same word. Paralambano, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And we're going to go up, and we're going to pitch a tent for about seven years. We're going to tabernacle in heaven. But it's short term. We're not building a temple. We're not staying for good. We're coming back for the millennial kingdom. And then after that, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But that's for a future study. But think about what's happening here. Because he says that the beast is opening his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So on earth at this time, in the tribulation, the beast will demean the raptured church. Well, of course he will. The world's better off without all those Christians, those Jesus people, those missing, misguided religious extremists. Aren't we glad they're gone? No longer bothering us with their bigotry and intolerance. And he's going to be saying this, explaining away the rapture of the church. He's going to have to. Yeah, we got them all cleared out for the greater good. There are all kinds of theories that are already being set in play. We've talked about alien invasion. All the Christians were just taken out by the aliens because the aliens knew the Christians were the annoying ones, you know. Another one that's interesting, that's kind of a, a new one that's come out, is the, the world is going to take out 
those who are not, you know, fit for the world. Like, in, it's going to be an environmental disaster of some kind that, that just evaporates. Well, if you saw the last Avengers movie, and just target the Christians. And they're just all evaporating because the environment's mad at the Christians. I mean, it's just nutty stuff. Just know that Antichrist at this time, the beast, is going to be beasting. He's going to be playing at this stuff and he's going to denigrate Christians even as he's blaspheming the Lord. Verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were the saints. And we are. Actually, there's three groups of saints. Holy ones, if you will. The word saints is hagios in the Greek. It's translated either saints or holy ones. It's also kedosim in the Hebrew. And that's also holy ones. It's a phrase. It's a word either in the Hebrew or the Greek. Kedosim. Holy ones never describes angels. Holy ones, hagias, saints in the New Testament. It doesn't describe angels. That's angelos or malach. So this isn't a word that describes angels. It describes people, the people of God. And there are three different classifications, if you will, within saints. There's the church who are caught up. So if he is making war with the saints, we're not talking about the church because we're tabernacling with Jesus. We're having a big camp out at our bridal party. But down here on earth, there are the other two classifications. There's the tribulation saints and Israel. Both of which will be on earth at this time. The church will not. How do we know? Because the church is completely absent. And again, I point you to verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And every time I read that, I feel like falling out of my chair because it misses a big part of the sentence. Which we see in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And I'm going to repeat this because I was asked about this on Sunday. Now, what was missing out of verse 9? Will you tell me what two things are missing out of the statement, if anyone has an ear, let him hear? Spirit in the church. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And God intentionally says that eight times in Revelation 2 and 3. And then we jump up here to Revelation 13. We're in the middle of the tribulation and suddenly the same exact phrase is used. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And you feel like falling over because there's something missing. The Spirit is missing. And the church is missing. The church is absent, my friends. The church cannot be the saints who are being overcome. Well, Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is not what's being overcome here. It's the saints who are on earth. For a time, they're going to feel overwhelmed. They're going to seem as though they're being overcome by this, this dragon, by the beast. But you know, back in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, and they overcame him. Because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. Now, hold that thought for just a minute and look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. That is, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And that is a call to those on earth at the time. But note this, 
Verse 8, I kind of like the way the King James writes it a little better. So let me read it to you that way. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the beast, whose names are not written, written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And you hear the difference. There's the foundation from the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So the book has been there from the foundation of the world. Or in the King James translation, the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Which one is it? Any guesses? It's both. <laughs> it's both. You can't have the book of life of the Lamb slain without the Lamb having been slain. Okay, does that make sense? This is His book of life. And the reason it's a book of life is because the Lamb was slain. It's the slaying of the Lamb that provides life. That allows the names to be written in the book of life. The book of life is of the Lamb slain by the foreknowledge of God. This is why we go all the way back to the foundations of the world. Listen, get this, it's important. It's not that Jesus was crucified and then God created the earth. No, Jesus was crucified right in the timeline where we see 2,000 years ago, north of Jerusalem, at Golgotha. That's when the crucifixion happened. But from the foundation of the world, God foreknew it. He foresaw it. And because He foreknew what was coming, what would happen, the book of life was already written. Now, I'm going to walk real close to predestination here and just say something to y'all. That means before you were born, your name was already in the book. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, your name was in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Before I chose Him? Yeah. How can that be? He knew you'd choose Him. So by His foreknowledge, He said, Hey, Rick is going to follow He's going to believe in Jesus. He's going to accept Jesus as his Lord. Write his name in the book. I can just see some of the angels. Well, Lord, it hasn't happened yet. I saw it happen. I am. Write it down. Your name was in the book. Just as the lamb was slain. Well, the lamb wasn't slain. Not from our timeline. He wasn't slain until 2,000 years ago. 32 B.C.? That's when he was slain. No. That's when he was slain in time. But by his foreknowledge... The death of the Lamb was already a sure thing. So the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 tells us, We were redeemed with precious blood as of a Lamb unblemished and spotless of Christ, for He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That death, that sacrifice, that redemptive act, it was foreknown. Revelation 17, verse 8. Again, look over there one more time. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. I believe speaking of the empire aspect of the beast's reign. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So this is speaking of those who from the very foundation of the world never had their name written in the book of life. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Some people had their name written, some people didn't. Even before they made the choice? No, because they made the choice. Are you with me? Am I losing anybody here? Okay. 
Well, what if I haven't chosen him? Choose him. <laughs> I mean, that, that, it's that simple. He knew you were going to choose, but I haven't chosen. Then choose, and he will have known that you were going to choose him. You get it? <laughs> written from the foundation. The name's written in the book of life by the blood of Christ from the foundation of the world by the foreknowledge of God. He knew what we were going to do before we did it. He didn't keep us, he didn't make us do it or keep us from doing it. He didn't force us to act in one way or another, but he knew exactly what we would do. And by that foreknowledge, he secured this, wrote the names down. Now, verse 9 again is devoid of both the spirit and the church. And it is an alarm of warning to a world that doesn't have either one. And I've been saying this in this time of tribulation. And Paul talks about it, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He calls it the restraining influence. There's a restraining influence right now in the world. As evil as the world is, there's a restraining influence that is pushing back, holding back the tide of evil, holding back even the coming of Antichrist. But that restraining influence, Paul says, is going to be removed. That restraining influence isn't just the church nor is it the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit in the church. I've given my Spirit, He pours out His Spirit, He says, on the church. So when the church goes, I believe the Spirit goes right along with the church. Now, people have asked, okay, well, I've heard you say that, Pastor, but if the Spirit is gone, how can someone be born again? Oh, that's a good question, I hadn't thought about that one. If the Spirit is gone, how can someone be born again? I never said the Spirit won't inhabit the individual. Or the Spirit won't be at work. God is omnipresent. He can do whatever He wants. And He can be wherever He wants. And if someone gives their life to Jesus, as people will, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, yes, they will be born again by the Spirit. And I do believe, yes, the Spirit will indwell the individual. But I do not believe He will be poured out lock, stock, and barrel as He is right now over the entire church. See, there's a dynamic that we're missing here. That we're misunderstanding. There's the Holy Spirit in me. And there's the Holy Spirit in Susie and in Bill. But you know what? Where two or three are gathered in His name, He's there. There's the Holy Spirit in us. Which I think is just marvelous. We were reading an article today, earlier today, that some of you may have seen it. I think it popped up on Fox News. It was an opinion piece by a guy who was saying the the church, in essence, is over. The church is done. The church that we've known for the last 20, 30, 40 years is history. We need to go digital. It just needs to be digital. We need to meet the world where it's at and go digital so that people can listen to sermons and download things and, you know, they can, they can listen to their podcasts and all that's, you know, I have no problem with the digital stuff alongside. But there was one thing missing in the entire article as I read down this about how we need to meet the world where it is and provide sermons by podcasts and sermons by the internet and sermons, 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 and there was no worship mentioned. You know what you can't do by yourself? You can't worship in corporate worship. You can worship by yourself, but you cannot worship corporately. And there is a dynamic of the Spirit that takes place when we gather together. The church is not going to fold or fade away or die off. It will be raptured out when Jesus comes. But I'll tell you what, as long as there are human beings who recognize the Spirit among us, we will gather. We will always gather. 
Something you cannot get any other way. The gathering of the saints with the Spirit of God who is poured out on all of us. Joel 2.28, the prophecy that Peter uh, reflected in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So I believe the difference between now and then is kind of like the difference between now and, and, and then. That is, the difference between the church age and the tribulation, or the church age and the age before, is that in the church age, the Holy Spirit is broad spread, poured out over the many. Whereas prior to this, did people get the Holy Spirit? Do you read about this in the Hebrew Scriptures? Saul was given the Holy Spirit, right? And then the Spirit was removed from Saul and given to David. Prophets were given the Holy Spirit, anointed, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. Certain kings were given the Spirit. But you do not see the Holy Spirit poured out on Israel or poured out on a group of people. You don't see that until Pentecost. And then at Pentecost, the Lord, as it were, just broad-spread, supernatural outpouring of the presence of His Spirit over the church. And as the church grew, the Spirit spread out and is still to this day among all of us together. And so there's that marvelous corporate dynamic of the Spirit of Christ in us, among us, between us, drawing us together, creating a love here that wouldn't be here without Him. In the tribulation... I believe we're going to be right back to Jewish times. People will receive the Spirit. People can get born again. But this dynamic will be missing. My opinion. Revelation 13 verse 10 going on. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. What? What does that mean? Let me read it to you again. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Literally, the destined, you might see it in italics there. It's because in the Greek it's just the word for captivity. But the tense that is used there really means if anyone leads into captivity. So if you lead someone into captivity, you're going to go into captivity. If you kill with the sword, you will be killed by the sword. And then he says this, and it just seems kind of mysterious. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Hmm. What is the perseverance and the faith of the saints? What exactly does this mean? If we look over in chapter 14, verse 12... Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now that sounds good. That makes sense to me. We persevere by preserving the commandments and by keeping our faith in Jesus. We'll persevere. But, but this one's just weird. If I lead someone to captivity, I'll be captured. If I kill someone with a sword, I'm killed. Here's the perseverance of the saints. What is Jesus saying through John in this verse? John was there. He saw it happen. In the garden, when the Roman soldiers came up and surrounded Jesus, they had a brief conversation. I love putting all of the Gospels together and and thinking through the story as it happened. Even them asking, we're here for... Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And He says, well, that's me. And they all fall back. 
<laughs> and they do it again. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I'm talking to you. And they all fall back. There's power there, folks. But at that moment, in that garden, Peter loses it. Draws the sword, swings at the most dangerous person in the entire crowd, the servant of the high priest. Lops off his ear. Luke, the physician, tells us Jesus picks up this little bloody ear and heals him. The servant's name was Malchus. Luke tells us that, I think, because Malchus probably became a believer. I'm the guy who cut, he, he, whose got, ear got cut off. Look! Just look! There's not a piercing, there's nothing there. It's perfect! <laughs> John was there. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? John 18, verse 11. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What's the point? Those who follow Jesus at this time, and I think this applies to you and me here today, we are told, don't fight back. If you lead people into captivity, you're going to go into captivity. If you kill with the sword, you will be killed with the sword. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Don't fight back. Don't do it the way the world does it. The perseverance and faith of the saints requires submission even unto death. What do we see in the first century? In the 283 years of tens of millions of Christians being martyred. What did they do? We read about this in the letters to the churches. We talked about these Christian martyrdoms. Led before the magistrate, taken before the Romans. We're going to burn you at the stake unless you renounce Christ. Well, I can't renounce Christ. Well, then we're going to burn you at the stake. Do they fight back? No. They stand at the stake. When they came with the ropes to tie the martyrs. Staff tells me it was Polycarp. I don't remember if it really was or not. But one of the martyrs, I remember the story. We talked about it in here who stood at the stake and they came to, to tie him up and he said, don't worry about it, I won't go anywhere. They lit the wood on fire and he stood there and burned to death. That's the perseverance of the saints. This is something I think we in the church misunderstand that we don't get as well today. We want to fight. We want to fight for our rights. I have a right to die. Did Jesus fight for his rights? Put the sword away, Peter. Put it away. It doesn't mean that we compromise the truth, not one iota. It doesn't mean that we back down from declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not at all. But it means we do so and accept the consequence. If that lands me in jail, so be it. If that means I'm killed for it, so be it. That's that's the mentality of the witness of the martyr. You don't fight back. And by the way, beasting doesn't get that at all. The beast, he fights. He dominates. He dictates. He demands submission. And Proverbs 119 says, So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Jesus said so clearly, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom was of this world, remember what he said? My servants would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom's not. We don't do it that way. This is not how we function. 
We do not deny the truth, but we don't fight back. Sounds like you're being passive. No, I'm I'm just convinced of the eternal. Of what is bigger than this moment today. And I also know, oftentimes, fighting back. I know in my life, when I fought back, I've lost the battle. Even if I've won the fight. When I've gotten into an argument with someone, and I argue them right into a corner and walk away, (laughs) I showed them who's right and who's wrong. I've said this before, we're not about winning arguments. We're here to win souls. And you don't win souls by fighting back. The perseverance of the saints is do not fight. Well, while the beast is beasting, up comes a second beast out of the earth. And the earth here is picturesque of the land of Israel. Remember the beast of the sea, the sea of humanity. Now comes the beast right up out of the land. And his appearance is at least at first a little less dreadful than beast number one. Then I saw another beast. Now, same words used, so this is still a beastly character. And yet, he comes up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, stop right there. Two horns like a lamb. Lambs have horns. They have little horn nubs, you know, that kind of buds sticking up out of their heads. Cute little lamb, little buds. Just looks like a lamb. This is what I would call a sympathetic lamb. This is the Arneon, lamb. Same word used for Jesus, little lamb. Comes up out of the land. It's a, it's a cute little lamb. And he appears non-threatening. And he's a lamb because, well, he's a Christ figure. But he's really not. Because in Revelation 5, verse 6, the lamb standing, Jesus, the little lamb standing as if slain, had seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Seven horns on the little lamb Jesus indicating complete authority. Absolute authority. But this little lamb, with just the two horns, this wolf in sheep's clothing has limited authority. And he looks like the lamb, but he is the beastly false prophet. The false prophet. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Well, how do we know that this is a false prophet? Because not only did he have two horns like a lamb, cute little lamb coming up out of the land, but he spoke as a dragon. The speech of a dragon. It becomes clear what he is when he opens his mouth. Deception diabolical power. But this second beast out of the land, this lamb-like beast, so this really religious kind of uh, picture of, of the beast, he comes up and he's the false prophet, but he's a lackey. He's a toady for the Antichrist. He is subservient to the Antichrist, but as such, that doesn't mean he's any less dangerous because he begins to act in the supernatural power of the Antichrist. So note that he's a sympathetic lamb with the speech of a dragon and the supernatural power of the Antichrist. He exercises, verse 12, all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Fire from heaven. 
Fire coming down. What's that a picture of? It reminds me of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But the purpose here, unlike the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's purpose is always to elevate Jesus, right? The purpose of the false prophet here is to elevate the beast. To cause everybody to fall down in worship of the Antichrist. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. And so He does. And so I've said that you will know a church is Spirit-filled where Jesus is worshipped and exalted. Because that's what the Spirit does. But in this case, you've got this false prophet, this, this evil spirit in a prophet suit, and yet he is standing up saying, Worship the beast. Fall down before the beast. Give praise to the beast. Well, like I said earlier, the dragon has been studying for 2,000 years the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how this works, how they function. And he begins to mimic with mockery the pattern in his own unholy trinity. And he deceives those, verse 14, who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Verse 15, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So now you've got this massive image. Remember we talked about Sunday, just like Nebuchadnezzar had his image set up and said, you've got to worship my image. The image was 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide with 6 musical instruments around it. Right? Worship the image. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 says this. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, that is of the fifth and the sixth trumpet, the demonic plagues, if you recall, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. But can they talk? This one can. This image set up looks like Antichrist and moves and talks. Kind of an animatronic thing, I think, is what's going on. In Kyoto, Japan, at the Kodaiji Temple, a humanoid robot named Mindar, an AI version of the Buddhist deity Canon Bodhisattva, the goddess of mercy, has already given its first sermon on the Heart Sutra, which is a key scripture of Buddhist teaching. According to the Japan Times, this robot, and you can see a picture of it if you Google this thing, this robot offers a path to overcome all fear, destroy all wrong perceptions, and to realize the perfect nirvana. The head and the face and the hands move, and it turns and it talks and it it, teaches Buddhism. (laughs) The tech is ready to go. When this image is set up and it's given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, when we see what's going on with with AI, artificial intelligence in the world today, it's good to go, folks. 
this image will be set up and will speak. And people will be entranced by the image of the beast and will worship the image and will worship the beast because of the image. Well, where's this going to happen? Where, where's this image going to be set up? Anyone? Hmm? In the temple in Jerusalem. This is the abomination of desolation. So if you're looking for it in Revelation, it's right here in Revelation 13. The abomination of desolation, and this is when the beast plays his hand completely. Daniel chapter 11, 31. Forces from him will arise. They'll desecrate the sanctuary fortress. They'll do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so now Antichrist emulates Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but now this statue speaks. Oh, by the way, I don't think I said this. Maybe I did on Sunday. Interesting that the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sets up with the 60 by 6 by 6 instruments, sets this thing up. And if anyone refuses to worship, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were to be fired. Literally. They were to be thrown in the furnace. But you know what it tells us in Daniel chapter 3, verse 19? The furnace was heated up seven times hotter than usual. Seven times hotter? Like the seven years of tribulation. It's a picture all the way back there. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a clue what he was doing, but he was just fulfilling prophecy. Painting a picture that would come to pass in the tribulation. And so, in the same way, this this AI idol is a death machine. Because if you don't worship it, you die. But that's always what happens when you worship idols. Idolatry kills Idol worship steals life. No wonder John was inspired to write at the end, at least what many believe to be his final letter, which is actually 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 21, last thing he pins, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Because idols will always kill. What are your idols? By the way, Idols steal life. What are your idols? What is it that you look to? What what do you trust in? What do you lean toward? Where do you feel comforted? If the answer is not Jesus, but something else, it's an idol. Well, this idol is is a killer. Verse 16, And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so much has been made of this. Some have said, well, Antichrist, if we're looking at the worthless shepherd from Zechariah 11, and a sword is on his arm and his right eye is blinded, that that's why the mark will be on the hand or on the forehead. Kind of a stretch. But what's the deal with this? 
The mark of the beast. Well, what does the Bible say about marks? Let's start right there. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Does God hate tattoos? I mean, it's right there, Leviticus 28. And of course, the person covered with tattoos says, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And you are. You are. Understand that historically speaking, pagan nations tattooed their bodies. It was part of the deal. Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gigabites, you know. Termites and the Fortnites, they all tattooed themselves. And God didn't want His people to imitate the nations. And we can learn something there. God doesn't want us to imitate the nations. Prophetically, there's a mark that's coming that will guarantee damnation for anyone who takes it. If you take this mark, you cannot, you will not be saved. It's the mark of the beast. Now one more thing about tattoos. I I don't mention them honestly to shame or embarrass anyone who's got a tattoo or two or three or you're covered. I don't have issue with that. I don't take issue with that, whether it's tattoos or whatever's trending now. My concern is that we don't trade out the truth for cultural relevance. And I saw this big time in youth ministry. When I was a youth pastor in the late 80s, early 90s, through the 90s, and I would see all my youth pastor friends, and and first thing they started doing, they started looking like they're teenagers. Like the kids that they, they served, they would get piercings and they would they would start getting tattoos and and I'm uh, and trying to be cool, trying to be relevant, trying to look like the kids looked, or wearing tennis shoes, like I'm wearing right now. I got these new shoes and and I'm walking out of the house tonight, and Naomi goes, Dad, how come you're wearing mom's shoes? <laughs> wearing mom's shoes. These are my new treads. Really? Can they make them in, in men's sizes too? <laughs> Naomi, Naomi. And then she says this. I, I go, what do you think they look like women's shoes? She goes, no, they're just a lot younger than what you usually wear. <laughs> I'm like, girl, you're digging a pit. And I'm in it. <laughs> Cultural relevance. You know what? Culture changes. Jesus does not. And while the culture is tatted up, and it is, I even heard a rumor that Steve Berenson has a tattoo. I don't know. I don't know. He also said he has a four-pack. So, all weekend long at the Shepherd's Retreat, we're talking about his four-pack tat. I, you know, I'm like, I don't want to see this. I'm just kidding. I'm sure that the, you know. Talk to Steve. We need to follow up on this one, don't we? Yeah. Culture changes. Jesus never does. So rather than trying to be like culture, whatever it is, however it is, you know, and not just throwing someone with a tattoo under the bus. I mean, it's, it's every one of us trying to look like the culture looks, trying to act like the culture acts, thinking that if we do that, then we can attract the culture. It doesn't work. You know what the culture does? Laughs. I know what you are. You're one of those Christians. I don't care if you have a cross tattoo on your arm. You're not fooling anybody. And we're not. So why try? 
Let's just be about Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Never changing. And referring to the Antichrist world system at that time, Revelation 18 verse 4, voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not or will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Come out of the world. Be holy, God said, as I am holy. You want to look like someone? Look like me, Jesus would say. Want to act like someone? Act like Jesus. You want to be different? Be godly. Revelation 22.11 says, let's, let's be clear, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Man, if you're going to do wrong, just do it. And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now again, I'm not condemning tattoos, but I am making a case that here in these last days especially, we are called to come out of the world and not to pattern ourselves after the world. To be different because, hey, we are. Bottom line, the world is already neck deep in both the tech and the taking of such a mark for buying and selling. And that's what's interesting, and it's attracted prophecy buffs for a long, long time. Now, what is it about this mark that allows you to buy and sell? And back in John's day, it wouldn't have made sense. What is it, just a symbol that you got to show? I've got, I've got the right symbol here, so I'm allowed to purchase things or buy things. Oh man, we live in a cashless society, don't we? We don't carry cash anymore. Now, I, I stopped carrying cash about 30 years ago. Why? Because if I carried it, I'd spend it. So I just, <laughs> just stopped. But we live in a society where it's all, it's all the card. You know, and, and the card now has a chip in it. A little, you know, RFID uh, chip, a little microchip is in the card. And now, now you don't even have to put the card in, you just tap it. I love it. Done. Cashless society, microchips and credit cards, and in people. And we've been talking about this actually for years. Applied Digital Solutions came out, uh, last time I was teaching Revelation, so 13 years ago, came out with the very chip, and people freaked out. The very chip! It's like a little RFID chip or a microchip that that has the information on it, and and, and they want to implant this, and and you know they did, in dogs (laughs) and cats. So now if, if you have an animal and you take it into the vet, chances are it's got a chip. Not like a chip on its shoulder, it's just got a chip you know, implanted in it somewhere. Well, Applied Digital Solutions has now renamed their very chip. Instead, they now call it Positive ID. Doesn't that sound better? Positive ID. And it's secure. That's a great way to keep your medical records. Just have the... Have the it's, it's about a, a Tylenol-sized uh, little, little chip, you know? You just have it inserted right there in the, in the fatty area right above the thumb. It's a perfect place for it. You won't even feel it there. Uh, a company named Biohacks. That's a great name. Biohacks. It's a Swedish tech company that interestingly began as Cutting Edge. That's what they originally were called when they started. The founder of Biohacks founded Cutting Edge first. And Cutting Edge uh, specialized in far-out practices of body piercing, specifically hot steel skin branding and septum piercing. 
This was, this was the precursor to what became biohacks, but then they started to realize people want these chips under the skin. We can do this. And biohacks has already implanted this chip, their chip at least, in 4,000 people. 4,000 people are now walking around with an RFID chip in their hand. And these people call themselves biohackers. Because, hey man, I got the chip! And it's interesting, for the most part, they're heavily tattooed. Again, no offense to the tattooed, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying that there's a mentality here. This says my body becomes a thing of art and becomes a thing of tech. And I can put the tech in my body. And so now they've got them. Other companies are following suit. The Wisconsin-based three-square market now is offering these RFID chips. RFID is radio frequency identification. And so these little chips, they're offering it to their volunteer employees. 50 employees in Wisconsin have already signed up to get this thing. And you get this chip implanted. And what it does is you can, you can use the chip to buy things, you know. You don't even have to get a credit card out of your wallet. You take your Twinkie to the counter and just go, Whoom, and you're eating, bud. <laughs> and you can, use it to, uh, you can use it to open doors, you know, like a key code. And then you go. I mean, man, this is handy. What a great idea. I still don't know why you would put it in your forehead. Can you imagine that? You're at the grocery store and someone goes, oh, yeah, I got to pay for that? Okay. <laughs> so I'm not sure how that's going to catch on. <laughs> but these chips are, are everywhere and they're, they're just... Here's the difference between now and over a decade ago. Cultures embraced it. Why? Security, baby. Security keeps you safe. You don't have to worry about your credit card getting lost or stolen. It's in your hand. Who's going to, you know, they're going to cut your hand off? Could happen. People walking around with big gashes in their forehead because someone beat them up and stole their chip. At this point in the tribulation, here's the difference. The beast will require allegiance for acquisition. He's going to say it's devotion for dollars, commitment for capitalism. And let's be perfectly clear, and you need to understand this, the people in the company in Wisconsin who are taking this chip are not condemning themselves. What do you mean? This is a choice that people will know they are making for the beast. They're going to know. It's not a... Oh, I just ended up with a chip... Oh no, oh no, I'm signed up with a beast. No, it's not, you're not going to be tricked into it. Nobody is going to be tricked into taking the mark. Required to have the mark? To buy or sell? Absolutely. But it's not an ATM or RFID number that's assigned to people. It is the name and or the number of the beast and it is chosen by people. Funny because I remember when ATM cards came out, and, and my mother-in-law Sharon, don't tell her I told you all this, but she was freaking out. Have you seen these things? ATM cards? It's the beast! It's the beast! I know it's the beast. <laughs> and I'm like using mine, no problem. No, you know what you're doing. That's the issue here. The rebellion we see. Yeah, I'll take that mark. As they tattoo a six 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 on the hand and across the forehead, the name of the beast. It is a known thing that people are doing. And God, by the way, makes it painfully clear what it means for those who choose this mark. If you look ahead real quickly, Revelation 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. 
which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. God isn't messing around here. And by the way, the Lord never punishes without giving fair warning far in advance. 2,000 years ago, before this kind of technology was even a possibility, was even a thought, God said, listen, a mark is coming one day, it will be tied to the beast, it's going to be a number or his name, either one, but you're going to know, don't take it. Because if you take it, this is what will happen. No question. Why is God telling us so far in advance? Because He loves us so much. Because God doesn't want anyone to be foolish enough to say, i got to be able to buy and sell. It's not too much to ask. No, it's everything to ask. You are giving up your eternity. Not you. I mean, we'll be in heaven. We're going to be tabernacling. But people will be giving up their eternity to take this mark. It is a mark of allegiance. No one will be duped. And that being said, all this is to say that the world is being set up big time right now. By the way, when you have a credit card, you all know this, um, if you do it, use it on phone or online, you're using your credit card number, they've added, a while ago, an authorization code in the back. You've got to give a little authorization code. You know, it's just more numbers. I don't get that. You've already got, I what, 16 numbers there? And three more are going to help? Oh, I just told you. How many numbers are on the back of the credit card? Three, like, oh, one nine seven or eight four one or six 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 verse eighteen. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty six. Again, from Sunday, we talked about this. Papyrus 47 is the Chi Xi Sigma. 666. So it's three Greek letters. And we talked about how six is the number of a man, and 666 is the number of a man who never arrives at seven. He never gets to seven. He never knows completion. He never knows the seventh day of rest. That's Antichrist. That's why his number is 666. He's the guy who never gets there. He's the man, by the way, who never does resurrect from the dead. He never reaches seven. And our completion, brothers and sisters, our, the finishing work of Christ in you and me is in our resurrection. For when we resurrect in that moment, we become our eternal selves. We are glorified by Christ. We will never die. That's the that's the seven. In Revelation, we see a lot of sevens as we do throughout Scripture, but in Revelation alone, we see seven heads, which are the seven kings on seven mountains. We'll be talking about them. We see seven bowls of wrath. Seven crowns are given. Seven trumpets are blown. Seven peals of thunder are heard. Seven angels blow the seven trumpets. Seven horns on the Lamb who was slain, seven eyes on the Lamb, who are the seven spirits of God. We read, we see seven seals, seven stars, seven golden lampstands, seven churches. And among all these sevens, one who walks 
among the lampstands. Who is that? The complete man, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect man. And He is the one who not only is complete because He rose by His own power, by His own authority, Jesus resurrected. And that's what makes us complete is resurrection. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. But Antichrist never arrives. Never gets there. You know, I mean, at the risk of sounding at all compassionate (laughs) for this beast, there's something tragic in the son of perdition, in the son of waste. Something tragic in this being who gets used up and spit out by Satan. And in the end, 666 never gets there. Antichrist is just spinning his wheels with evil and wicked and malicious intent. Let me end with this tonight. How does a human being become such a human beast? For that's what's happening. Some have wondered, is Antichrist in the world right now? He may be. Maybe he's a little kid. Maybe he's a politician. You know, maybe he's in the world doing something somewhere. I kind of suspect that if we're as close to the end as I think we are, that he probably is in the world somewhere doing something. But you know what he would look like right now if he walked in this place? Just a man. Just a guy. Just a human being. How does a human being become the beast? Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Daniel chapter 11, verse 37 gives us the key to how he becomes the Antichrist. How he embraces the filling of this demonic spirit. How he becomes the beast. And it's very simple. Four words. He will magnify himself. That's it. That's how you go from being a human being to being a human beasting. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he exalts himself. He magnifies himself. And in that exaltation and in that hunger for power and in that desire for pride, Antichrist puffs up, gets bigger and more powerful and more excited about who he is and what he can accomplish and what he can do in this world. And as his arrogance goes off the charts, the Antichrist spirit fills this man and the human being becomes the human beast. How about you? How about me? Are we living to magnify ourselves? Jesus makes us complete in our resurrection. But you know what has to happen before resurrection? Death. There has to be a death. I mean, to be raised from the dead, you have to die, right? What about the raptured church? Before the completeness of resurrection, there's got to be an end to the old self. We've got to die to self. We've got to die to our desires, die to our pride, die to who we were, die to any self-exaltation. Because magnifying or exalting the self is a beasting way to live. It makes us look like the beast. 
Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus isn't calling on you and me to hate ourselves. He's saying, hate your life in this world. Just hate your life in this world. Don't magnify what you are, what you can become. Don't focus on your success and your your getting bigger and your exaltation. No, die to that self. And Jesus will resurrect you to the complete person that He's wanted you to be ever since you were born. Father, we pray for that completeness, for that day when it comes. We desire, Lord, not to be beastly. And I guess the thing is, Father, we're all capable of it. For all that we've just studied in this chapter about all the things that Antichrist does and the false prophet does and all these beastly, horrible things that they try to pull off. Lord, we're all capable of beastliness. Usually happens, Lord, in my life when I'm magnifying myself. Lord, it's Your Word that says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And so rather than lifting ourselves up tonight, Lord, we humble ourselves before You. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You alone are awesome. Jesus, You alone are King. You alone deserve the glory and the honor and the praise. None of us. We find, Lord, that we come into the seventh day, the day of rest. We come into a sense of born-againness, even unto resurrection, when we recognize You are the Lord and we are not. And so, Father, I pray that You'll help each of us to give up lordship of our lives and to hand over the throne and to stop feeling like somehow we have the right to rule ourselves. When we come under the authority of Jesus, we hand that over to You. Oh, be magnified, Jesus, in us all. And be lifted up. In Jesus' name, Amen.